Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said could be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Well, I hope you guys are having a fun time uh, quarantining and chilling. Um, while the rest of the world is running around with uh, with like a chicken with their head cut off trying to avoid COVID-19, a secret, uh, not so secret, but a, a bigger threat to IT is hitting us. And that is the Earn It Act. If you haven't heard about the Earn It Act, we're going to cover it here on the show. You can read more at act.eff.org. But the Earn It Act is essentially a uh, an acronym for the Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technology Act, E-A-R-N-I-T Act. The bill would require tech companies to meet safety requirements for children online before obtaining immunity from lawsuits. Now, let me stop right here and say that I believe personally if you are in the process or affiliated with and or trying to enable people to hurt children in any way, you should be buried underneath the prison. Okay? Like, I have no excuses, no, just full stop. If you're out to hurt kids, if you advocate to hurt kids, if you participate in any sort of technological advance that enables people to hurt kids, then you're not part of this discussion. So now that we've put that clearly and concisely where I stand on that, now let me move on to the rest of this. The Earn It Act really has nothing to do with children. They are trying to kill the immunity. Um, the, 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 the bill would undercut Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, also known as the CDA, for certain apps and companies so they can be now held responsible for user uploaded content. Section 230 is considered the most important part uh, for protecting free speech online. And essentially what Section 230 says is that websites aren't liable for user submitted content. It says that you that Facebook can operate a social network and that as long as Facebook doesn't actively promote or upload or advertise indecent content that Facebook cannot be held responsible for the uploads that other people sign up for their service and upload. Now, as a person who just got done spending a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of time launching a site called wiki.linuxdelta.com in which the whole idea is to open it up to the community and allow people from all walks of life and all skill sets to come to the site and be able to contribute their knowledge. Do we potentially open ourselves up for somebody that could contribute, I don't know, knowledge on how to pirate TV shows or movies? Well, sure we do. But, you know, one of the things that we and we went back and forth, my team and I went back and forth about this for a long time. 
how are we going to handle those kinds of things? And essentially what we decided was we're not going to proactively solve problems. If a problem comes up, we will react to it and we will deal with it. But for the most part, we trust the community. And I, and I stand by that. I trust the community and I trust the community policing. We have one of the largest Linux groups in our Telegram group. If you're not a part of it, I invite you to do so at, at telegram.asknoahshow.com. It's a 24-7 interactive group in which we discuss all forms of technology. Now, from time to time, do we get some people that come in there and want to stir up some trouble? Absolutely. Are they dealt with swiftly? Yes. We pull them aside. We ask them once, hey, this is not cool. This is not acceptable. We want this to be a place for people of all ages and all technology levels. And we expect you to be responsible and respectful and treat other people with decent respect. If you can't do that, you'll be removed. And we voluntarily police that group because we don't want that kind of crap in our community. And many companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Apple, are using various kinds of technology in which they are comparing hashes to known abusive content so that they can scan their cloud services and so they can, they can scan their platforms for people that are trying to abuse the system and put an end to it. And nobody, including myself, has a problem with that. I support it 100%. The problem I have with trying to undercut Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is we are... We are trying to move away from, hey, let's all make a collective effort to say we don't want certain kinds of garbage on our sites and we don't want to promote the spread of certain kind of garbage and that should be, quite frankly, left off the internet. It changes the discussion from that to a surveillance state in which companies now have to make a choice about how they are going to implement encryption, if they're going to implement encryption at all. And don't kid yourself, this discussion is about encryption. The EARNIT Act is 100% about encryption. Quote, EARNIT is a bipartisan act having been introduced by Republican Lindsey Graham and Democrat Richard Blumenthal and other legislators who've used the specter of online child exploitation to argue for the weakening of encryption. This comes as no surprise as in December 2019, while grilling Facebook and Apple, Graham and other senators threatened to regulate encryption unless companies give law enforcement access to encrypted user data pointing to child abuse as the number one reason. First off, let's be clear about this. Just because you have the ability to break encryption does not necessarily give you any, any potential tools to go, any more potential tools to go after people who are using it in an irresponsible way. Fourth Amendment is not a shroud for illegal activity. And I, 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 am trying to, I am trying to maintain this line as solidly as I can because I think there is a definite line in the sand and one that we should never cross over. If you go from doing things like, I want to be able to send dirty pictures back and forth um, to my significant other, or I want to have a private conversation with a friend, or I want to talk about a, a deeply polarizing political subject, those are the reasons, well, actually, uh, who am I to decide what the reason for encryption is? You can encrypt your conversations even if you're just talking about the weather. Why wouldn't you, right? You have an expectation of privacy. You should feel welcome to use it. But we certainly start to understand a little more of why people want to obscure the meaning of certain conversations if they're talking about something that's, you know, potentially very polarizing or maybe it's an unpopular opinion or an unpopular belief. I'm perfectly fine with those kinds of things winding up encrypted, and they should be. They should be private, and they should be between two parties. 
if you think that you're going to hide behind those kind of privacy uh, protections for the purpose of doing illegal things, well, again, I think you should be buried underneath the prison. The problem is who gets to police those things? Who gets to say these are the okay things to encrypt and these are the not okay things to encrypt? I think we can all agree, again, nobody is really, nobody is fighting against the idea that we don't want child predators on the internet. But this bill does absolutely nothing to address them in specific. Essentially, what it's trying to do is create a God mode for law enforcement and William Barr to be able to say, I want to know what that guy's hiding. I want to know what that girl's hiding. Doesn't matter what it is. They just want the ability to unlock it. And I'll tell you where this comes from. For years and years and years and years and years, basically the entire human history, we have lived in a world in which there really was no such thing as a true secret, right? You write something down, somebody else can read it. You put it in a code, somebody else can break it. You stick it in a safe, somebody else can crack the safe open. There really is no way. I mean, there. I watched an entire uh, series on the Discovery Channel a few years back that was talking about how difficult it is to make a safe that's truly impenetrable. And essentially what you arrive at is you make a safe that is so difficult to break into that the very nature of breaking into the safe destroys the contents inside of the safe. And that's about the best they were able to do. If man can make a physical thing to lock something up, man can make something to break it back down. And for the first time in human history, after post-Snowden, and Snowden has come out and said, hey, the government is doing all these things. It's not with permission. It's not based, it is not found in the Constitution. It does not respect the Fourth Amendment rights. By the way, they're collaborating with all the other governments. So if you think you're safe because you live across the pond or because you live somewhere else, you actually probably have it worse than we do in the U.S. because we treat everybody pretty much equally terrible with treating American citizens a little bit better. This is the first time that encryption has really taken off because what happened after that is companies like Google and Apple and ProtonMail and Telegram and Signal, all of these organizations, all of these independent organizations, Mozilla should be definitely included in there. All of these organizations came together and said, you know what we're going to do? We are going to fight this and we are going to give people the technology and the tools that they need to live a private life. And I don't think that government elected officials really knew how to respond to that because for years, for years, if you didn't like what Symantec was doing with hard drive encryption, when you just approached the CEO of Symantec and said, hey, buddy, guess what we need in a backroom deal? We're going to need you to put this code in here. We're going to need you to do this, that or the other. And, you know, the CEO of whatever company it is that there's uh, OK, all right. AT&T, you, you need us to install this little black box that uh, funnels all the traffic. And Okay, all right, we can do that. I mean, it's become a joke inside the telecommunication. Industry. Here's the room that you can't go in. That's the NSA room. What do you do when it's an open source project? What do you do when it's GPG? What do you do when it's Signal? How do you stop these people from encrypting their messages and hiding the contents of it from us who want to see it? And what they found is... Fortunately or unfortunately, and I'm not taking a side one way or the other, if this is good or bad, it's just the way it is. Even the warrant process, even the process in which a court can rule and a judge can say, here's what's going to happen. That piece of paper really doesn't have a whole lot of effect because they can go ahead and say, yeah, you can go ahead and search this guy's apartment or this guy's house. But you kick down the door 
And all he does is shut the lid of his laptop. And now we're in a world of hurt. Because now we can't get to that data. Now it's been locked up in a safe so tight that even the most powerful computers on Earth with the most powerful government on Earth have a difficult time breaking into it. And they don't like that. It gives too much power to the individual and not enough power to the, the, the collective. Quote, it doesn't help organizations that support victims. It doesn't equip law enforcement agencies with resources to investigate pl claims of child exploitation or training in how to use online platforms to catch perpetrators. Rather, this bill's author have used defending children as the pretense for attacking our free speech and security online. If passed, the legislation will create a national commission on online child exploitation prevention tasked with developing the best practices for owners of internet platforms to prevent, reduce, and respond to child exploitation online. But, as the EFF maintains, best practices would essentially translate into legal requirements. Now, it's important to note here that the, the, the bill doesn't explicitly talk about encryption, but again, anybody reading this and anybody that, anybody that looks at what would best practices be, well, obviously, best practices would include something to the effect of when we come with a warrant and ask you to provide this user's data, you have to have a way to provide us this user's data. You can go ahead and encrypt all you want or don't encrypt if you don't want or encrypt but have a backup. We don't care how you do it. But when we come and ask for John Doe's records, we expect to have John Doe's records delivered to us. And this is something you've seen fought in court with great disdain. When private Internet access goes into court and says, hey, we would love to give you records. But guess what? We don't have them. People get upset. People say that they are defending criminals and that they're enabling a criminal enterprise. Quote, if the bill passes, the choice for tech companies comes down to either weakening their own encryption or endangering the privacy and security of all their users or foregoing Section 230 protections and potentially facing liability in a wave of lawsuits. And this is the thing that is particularly, I don't know, nefarious, I guess, about this bill. They're not coming out and just saying, hey, the federal government wants the ability to break your encryption. They're not going to come out and say that because that would go over like a lead balloon. Instead, they're trying this tricky tactic in which they're going to tell people, hey, you do whatever you want. We're just we're going to remove the protection of law that protects you in the event that somebody on your platform does something bad. So when we come knocking and ask for information, you better have it. And what they're counting on, and I might add, it's probably going to be very effective. What they're counting on is that people and companies acting in their own rational self-interest are going to make a choice. They're going to make a choice to prioritize their profit margins and limit their liability and their risk. And the way that you do that is you say, here's the requirement and we're going to remove the legal protection. So if people come and sue you into oblivion, that's going to cost a lot of money. And so do you want to take that risk or would you rather deal with the backlash of users? And to be fair, you can kind of start to justify to your users because we've set everything up for you. Hey, you're not weakening encryption. No, you're helping out. You're helping catch the bad guys. You're making sure that your platform can't be used for illegal, for illegal purposes. One of the bill's lead sponsors, um, Richard Blumenthal, told the Washington Post that he's unwilling to include a measure that would stipulate that encryption is off limits. 
If this is really about protecting kids, if this is really about getting to the bottom of people that are abusing encryption and abusing the tools that are on the internet, why are we not focusing on the activities that they engage in and the things that they do? Why are we attacking encryption as a whole? Why can't we leave encryption out completely and say, hey, Here's what we're going to do that is going to enable people to, we're going to allocate funding or we're going to allocate tools and resources to be able to locate these people and find other ways to track them down. I think most people that work in the, in the, in the technical community, and I would definitely include myself in this, would be more than happy to lend our expertise to making sure that dirtbags can't use the technology that, that we, that we uh, you know, trust and, and, and hold dear to us to hurt kids. The vast majority of us would be willing to help come up with tools. And I, to a certain degree, I believe the open source community and the technical community at large, if we focused our intelligence, our intellect, and our skills at trying to tra track some of these people down and kick them off the internet, that would be a fairly simple, straightforward thing to do. But that's not what this bill does. And that's not what Richard Blumenthal is going after. And that's not what Lindsey Graham is going after. They are irritated that they don't have access to our data. And this is something that has, it is a multi-spear approach. You go to companies like Ring and you say, hey, you have access to all this data. Can we have access? Yes, there's one thing in the bag. And then they go to Facebook and or Twitter and or social media and or email and Google and Apple and say, hey, we want access to all this cloud data. Okay, no problem. Now they have access to that. And over time, it becomes a slow erosion of the rights of the individual of the person to be free in their and, and explore technology in a free way. I was talking to my wife this week about this. There are so many times where I have had questions. How do you build this? How is this made? How is this done? What is the actual process behind that? And those kind of just general childlike curiosity questions should not be things that we shy away from. But you know what? In 2020, I don't know about you, I certainly think twice before I jump on the internet and start Googling things. Well, the woman that got arrested because she, uh, because she was looking at how to make quinoa and she was Googling pressure cookers and that got her a knock from the FBI. We live in a crazy world. Quote, I doubt I'm the best qualified person to decide what best practices should be. Better qualified people to make those decisions will be represented on the commission. So to ban or to require best practices... I just don't think this leads down uh, a very perilous road. And, and, and so to that end, I would hope that we would have an open discussion on what best practices are. But I don't, I don't believe that this is the kind of thing that should be legislated. I don't believe this is the kind of thing that we should come to people and say, hey, company XYZ or technology company XYZ, here's how you have to design or here's how you should design your technology. I think that should be left, again, to individuals. Besides the proposed bill containing no tools to actually stop online child abuse, it would actually make it much harder to prosecute them. According to an analysis for the Center of Internet Society at the Sanford Law School, as explained by, I'm going to butcher her name, but is it Rihanna Fifnacorn? Associate Director of Surveillance and Cybersecurity, as it stands now, online providers proactively and voluntarily scan for child abuse images by comparing their hash values to known abusive content. Apple does this with iCloud content. Facebook does this with hashing to stop million, millions of children's images. And Google released a free artificial intelligence tool to help stamp out abusive material, among other voluntary efforts by major online platforms. The key word here is 
voluntary. These platforms are all private companies as opposed to government agencies, which are required by Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable search to get warrants before they search our digital content, including our email, chat discussions, and cloud storage. The reason that private companies like Facebook can and do exactly that is because they are not the government, they're private actors. So the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to them. Translation, private companies are able to do this all they want voluntarily. Where it becomes an issue and where we start to get a little upset is when they want to push this th through Congress and they want to mandate this. Imagine the red tape this is going to create for individual content producers or places uh, places that want to host uh, the content of individual content producers. You know, right now, if you want to spin up a peer tube instance, you're not really worried about, I mean, I, I guess you are to a certain degree, but it's not the primary driving factor to be worried about the liability of sp setting up a peer tube instance. Anybody can do that. You start coming up with this best practices thing that is enforced by the rule of law. And all of a sudden, anybody that wants to spin up a PeerTube instance, all of a sudden, has to have some decent resources behind them because they have to be able to scan for this stuff and they have to be able to meet these best practices. And if they don't, they're going to be raked over the coals when the first time somebody files a lawsuit and they've lost their, their protection under Section 230. Again, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at askanoahshow.com. I want to draw attention to this. I want people to get out there and speak against this. Uh, the Earn It Act literally threatens encryption. It threatens the free internet, the internet being the last truly free place on earth where you can say anything, you can have any idea, you can have any sort of discourse. And that is, that's a very valuable thing for society. It's, uh, does it have its downsides? Absolutely. Have we all experienced it at one time or another? A hundred percent. Do the vast majority of us that are really passionate about technology and advancing it and lowering the digital divide and all of those things, do any of us believe that this is a good measure or going to help in any meaningful way? Absolutely not. So please help spread the word that this bill is should not go forward. The Earn It Act should fail. I hope it does. And um, this, is, this is not good for the internet. And, th you know, the truth is, as much as I would like to believe that this is a one-time discussion and this goes up and either it passes or it doesn't and then we're done with this, it's not. We have to be, and the EFF has done a good job. You better believe I took careful notes of all of the organizations that are fighting against us. By the way, we have the entire um, testimony tra transcripts uh, linked in the show notes this week. So if you go to podcast.asknoahshow.com, they're a little dry. Um, and so you have to you have to really have a have a brain for this. If you're if you if you really want to dig into it, because it can be a little rough to, to listen to, a little dry to listen to. But it's important and it's important to have this conversation. It's important to keep having this conversation and it's important to draw attention to this conversation when it comes up. Again, open phones, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email live at askanoahshow.com. Headline, AMD looks to court Linux gamers. Lead Linux kernel developer is needed to maintain an open source graphics driver and AMD is hiring a new lead Linux kernel developer to work on its AMD GPU driver for Linux. The position will be based at AMD's campus in Austin, Texas, and the lead developer will focus on designing and maintaining the graphic driver for Linux. As per the job description, which is spotted by Pharonix, that will include things like work on part of the global software engineering team to design and maintain Linux open source graphics device drivers, and other software components, 
Resolve problem reports related to GPU device drivers, including troubleshooting, debugging, and defect correction. And specify, design, and implement software features in Linux and open source driver stack and AMD GPU and APU product support. Of course, this role pertains to the heavyweight side of the GPU driver equation. The AMD specifies that it covers supporting workstation and data center needs, but naturally the consumer side as well. Every other week, we see another story coming to light in which AMD is doing everything they can to cater to the Linux and open source community. And it's, go it's about to pay off for them. It's, it's a slow process, as we talked about the other week. If you're looking for mission-critical stuff, you're probably still purchasing Intel. But every major company I've talked to, and I've talked to a ton of them, every major company has plans on the books or is actively working on plans to transition from, AM, from Intel over to AMD. And the reason that they want to do that is because they see the opportunity in the marketplace to get competition, especially when it comes to graphics performance. NVIDIA's Linux driver and its proprietary nonsense is far from ideal. Far from ideal. And the open source alternatives like NoView are in a pretty rough state. And they're hampered by a lack of documentation. And so when you have AMD giving direct access to people so that they can help develop systems around AMD and include it right in the kernel stack, and you just plug that graphics driver in, I tell you what, the day that my Ryzen machine arrived and I set it up in my basement and plugged it in, and you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I took it kind of with a grain of salt. I figured it could have gone either way. I figured it'd either really pay off and really work out, or it would be one of those things that uh, it worked most of the time and it was a little bit cheaper and I got a little bit more performance. And so there was a trade-off. And what I found is I've never a single time had to reboot that Kubuntu box that's running on a Ryzen 5 um, with an AMD GPU. Not a single time. It has been flawless since the day I put it into production like three months ago, four months ago, whatever it was. That's amazing. And the fact that Lenovo is now shipping laptops preloaded with AMD hardware, AMD graphics stacks, AMD processors, means that our ability to produce a Apple-like experience in which when the computer leaves the assembly line, the drivers are already included inside the kernel and the laptop is basically ready to run Linux right off of the belt, that's an incredible situation. And that's something that's going to lower the barrier to entry to a lot of people. It's also going to lower the barrier of entry to other PC manufacturers who would like to carry Linux, who see the demand for Linux, and would be interested in doing so, but have held off on doing so because of the support aspect. Hey, if we put Linux on these machines, sure, maybe it runs one time, but what happens when user XYZ runs into this problem? Who's going to troubleshoot that? Who's going to support that? Well, when you have support coming directly from the hardware manufacturer, and the people that are developing the software part are talking to the hardware people, and all of that is happening before the two were ever married to begin with. You set yourself up for success. Quote, AMD's open source unified Linux graphics driver is already well liked within the community. And we've seen a good deal of positive feedback to its stability and compatibility, which, as you may know, represents something of a contrast compared to the situation with Windows. Meanwhile, NVIDIA's, well, and, and so then they go into kind of rag on NVIDIA's driver a little bit. Um, this is good news. This is good news for us that are interested in getting people on Linux. It's good news for people that are interested in gaming on Linux. It's good news for anybody that wants more performance out of your computer 
and wants less headaches. Because for a long, long time, we would tell people at Ultraspeed Technologies, hey, you want a really reliable laptop, you want it to work really well, get the Intel integrated graphics. Don't worry about the NVIDIA. Because unless you're doing video uh, editing or unless you're doing some, some gaming, truth is you're probably going to have a lot more problems than you're going to solve. And so your best bet in th that situation, your best bet is to use the integrated Intel graphics. And the truth is Intel, just as good as AMD as far as uh, working out of the box, right? Intel does a great job working with Linux. Now, to a certain degree, they're in a slightly different boat because they have to work with Linux if they want to function in the enterprise sphere inside of the data center. Where they fall down is Intel doesn't really do graphics. They don't do discrete graphics the way that NVIDIA and AMD do. So AMD has a distinct advantage in that you can have dedicated graphics. You can do that external USB-C Thunderbolt graphics card uh, enclosure with an AMD graphics card, and you can have some semblance of confidence that it's going to work for you time after time. Absolutely fantastic story. An absolutely great work on the part of AMD. 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Matt calls from Iowa. Hey, Matt, welcome to the program. Hey, Noah. Thanks for letting me on. I've been a long-time fan of the show. Great, great. How can we help tonight? Uh, I was wondering uh, what sets Libver and Over apart from Proxmox for you. Mm. Uh, I've tried setting it up in my lab a few times, and I always end up wishing it was more like Proxmox and it could run LXC out of the box and run ZFX out of ZFS out of the box. But I always just found it's like I could just punch in all the commands to set this up on Libvirt, or I could just go back to Proxmox. Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. I love it. Um, so the, let, let's start with this. Let's start with the positives of Proxmox because I always get accused of of downplaying Proxmox, and I don't mean to do that. Uh, Proxmox is a great solution if you want an enterprise-grade uh, virtualization system that you can just take the ISO and install just like you would FreeNAS or anything else, right? Um, yep. You, you take the CD out, you install it, and you basically you're done with the, with the virtual, virtualization environment. The, the issue comes, or at least the issues that I've seen, come anytime you want to work outside the box or anytime you want to uh, start playing underneath the hood. One of the things that you'll notice right off the bat, have you tried updating Proxmox? Uh, yes, I have. The only issues I've ever had with it were if I tried doing it with Ansible. Okay. Um, so I guess I've otherwise, had... But otherwise, it's been pretty good. It's, it uh, goes to the update. CLI and the web GUI were fine, and I've run it in HA and on just like single node and two node clusters. Okay, fantastic. That's one of the things I've had an issue. If I don't have an active subscription service, I've had I've run into issues uh, with updating the system. That could just be a, a, you know a, a particular configuration thing on our end too. Um, but did the, you set up the sorry to interrupt you again. Uh, no, did you set up the no subscription repository. I did not. I so I've see, well so okay. Let me back up. Yes, I have. So to to start when when we get a customer that has Proxmox because we. By default, we will never usually deploy a, a, a Proxmox system, but we run into customers that have them. Um, when we run into customers that have them, if there is an issue and we look into it and say, well, it hasn't been updated, well, why hasn't it been updated? That is the issue, is that is that they don't, there is a special configuration and it's, I wouldn't say it's difficult. It just requires, again, a little monkeying under the hood um, to point it to different repos so that it can actually pull down updates. But it's one of those things that if you are, if you're a tech guy, and you're interested in this kind of stuff, 
that isn't necessarily a problem, especially if you have some Linux knowledge, changing repos, no big deal, right? We used to do that with Red Hat all the time, point them to CentOS repos and, and download the update. Shh, don't tell anyone. But the when it comes to Proxmox, one of the issues you find is you have small business owners that read on a tech form or see a YouTube video and say, oh, I should set that up for my business. And so they download the ISO and they put it onto a flash drive and they flash it onto a machine. And they're good to go. And then the machine doesn't update and they don't get why. Those are the kind of things that that are there. Again, it's not a show stopping issue, but it's a paper cut and it's a paper cut that doesn't exist inside of overt or libvert. Right. With libvert, you literally update the package manager. You automate the updates of the package manager and it will just update for you. Uh, and they would just they would like you to have the updates as soon as possible with or without any sort of subscription. Um, where you get into the real benefit, though, of overt and libvert, and the, 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 the fundamental reason of why I would tell somebody, hey, uh, don't stick with Proxmox. Again, if Proxmox is working for you, if it's doing the things you want, and, and like you say, uh, you crawl in there, you make a couple changes to the repo, now you've got updates, and everything is working, there's no reason not to use Proxmox. It's a fine piece of software, it's open source, it's all that. It runs on KVM, does all the things you'd want it to do. When you want to expand or, again, work a little bit outside of the box, what you're going to find is Libvert stores everything in QCOW2 files. Libvert has a, 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 a very structured, uh, very similar style of storing, storing images, storing device drivers, and a layout of that hyper, uh, hypervisor system, as does Overt, as does RHV, which is Red Hat's professional inter, uh, enterprise virtualization platform. And so picking up and moving between those three systems is fairly seamless. What I found with Proxmox is just trying to get information out of Proxmox, just trying to get those appliances exported um, can kind of be a chore. And then on top of that, trying to get those re-implemented into some other system um, is also kind of uh, problematic. And so what you find is you get a lot of people that get stuck in Proxmox and can't themselves out. Now there's ways to go about that and there's media conversion tools you can convert from one thing to the other. And of course you can even, you know, resort to things like Clonezilla to image a system and then and move it over to another virtualization system. We've done some of that with, you know, coming from and to VMware um, as well as Proxmox. Um, but overall, what I found is that I just, I, I guess I always feel like when I'm using Proxmox, I always feel like I'm working with one hand tied behind my back. And I always feel like everything I do, there's there's either an upsell or there is something that's preventing me from doing that thing because it doesn't fit the Proxmox way. Um, and so, and, and I'd be the first to admit, Matt, that that probably makes me somewhat of a uh, a one-off case, right? This is not, uh, there's no, there's no, technological barrier that is stopping someone from from doing one thing or the other with Proxmox or Libvert, I might add. Um, they're both capable virtualization platforms. I, I, you know, to a certain degree, I suppose it comes down to user preference. Um, I just, I've never, I've yet to set up a an Overt instance or a Libvert instance where, where a client has come to me and said, hey, here's what we want to do. Is this possible? And I've had to tell them, no, I've run across that once or twice in Proxmox. Um, and so when I start looking at where the future virtualization technology is going, um, you know, you've got big players in the in the ecosystem like VMware. The competitor to that, undisputedly, is RHV, right? I mean, this is Red Hat's drop-in solution to virtualization, and Overt is the free version of that. Libvert is where all of that started. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. Um, thanks. Because I could kind of tell in more recent episodes, you've said that, like, I don't 
dislike Proxmox. It's just I have a preference for Rev, and I right. kind of actually feel the same way backwards outside of the Red Hat has a much stronger enterprise story. Right. And, you know, here's so to the like, to, to that point, to your point, if you go online and you start looking at virtualization troubleshooting or help, the community around Proxmox is like three times the size of the community around RHV, because guess what? Everybody can run Proxmox. Only people that have thousands of dollars in a massive IT budget are running RHV and where that trend. So and, and then there's even further loss in translation in that the people that are passionate about over it, like myself, you know, if you're really paying attention to how those two projects relate to each other, then you understand that there is a correlation there. If you don't, then you start to get lost between, well, is over to completely separate product from RHV? Did they, did they share anything? Is there a reason you go from one to the other? And that community fragments and it and it fractures and you wind up with a massive support community around Proxmox and a growing support community around Overt. And so, you know, when you're troubleshooting stuff, particularly on your own, there is an advantage to using the popular thing, right? Yeah. And the on-ramp is a lot simpler, too, because what do you use in a single node setup? Proxmox. What do you use in an HA setup? Proxmox. Right. And the only thing that's really different is networking and storage, whereas there's a different UI and different branding around over yeah well not, yeah not only that you know like so for for uh, for over you don't really want to set up overt instances if you if it's all local storage for that you do want to stick with libvert and making those kind of decisions on hey do i want to you know am i going to go through the hassle of setting up over even the way that the first time you set up over to even get your getting your head wrapped around the way that nodes are where and and, and how those are set up can be kind of weird whereas like you say proxmox is kind of an all-in-one solution so I, I can understand the arguments for both. I just, just most of the environments that we work in and most of the customer constraints that I come across, I found that overt and libvert tend to be a better, a better fit. Um, it just, it, but again, that just doesn't, that doesn't mean anything from the standpoint of if you prefer Proxmox or if other people do, it's a, it's a fine virtualization platform. You know, the, here's the other thing, Matt, that we should all be aware of. I strongly believe that in the next five to 10 years, we're probably going to start going away from virtualized technology. Um, and the reason for that is containers. Uh, when we talked to Red Hat's chief technical officer last year at Red Hat Summit, I asked him, I said, what's going to be the biggest change uh, that you see coming up in Red Hat? And his answer was unequivocally, hey, you know, for a long time, we pushed people, pushed people, pushed people to, to virtualize their infrastructure. Now we're seeing it go the other way. Now we're seeing people come back to a single piece of hardware, lower the complexity, lower the threat vector, and segment out in containers instead because there's lower overhead, lower resources, all of those kinds of things. I see some problems with that as it relates to IP addresses and networking ports and all that kind of thing. But uh, I, I, I have to take him at his word when he says that's probably the direction the IT infrastructure is moving. And even if we keep virtualization around, because I, I would assume it will exist for a long time in one form or another, I would imagine that virtualization will quickly take on more and more standards, right? You're even seeing VMware uh, start to conform to some of the, 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 the open standards that, you know, VirtualBox and Overt and Libvirt and have been using for years. And I would imagine Proxmox would follow the same suit. Yeah, I would agree with you. And uh, one more thing, I do agree, getting stuff out of Proxmox can be a bear. You usually end up having to use a QEMU image from the CLI. Yeah. And you can't just yank the QCAL files off. Yep. Because yep. by default, they'll use LVM or ZFS blocks. Mm-hmm. 
But it, you know, it, it is possible and it does work. And uh, and again, I, I I want to try to change the reputation that I seem to have garnered here on the air that um, that I don't like Proxmox. Not I don't like it. It's just that I have found other solutions that that work a little work a little bit better from for my use cases. So, but that's a, it's a great it was a great discussion, Matt. I appreciate the call. I appreciate you calling in, and good luck with your. Um, with your virtualization infrastructure. By the way, if you don't have a virtualization infrastructure, we have a guide to show you exactly how to do it. You can find it at wiki.linuxdelta.com. And one 450 noah that's 855-450-6624. Of course, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. That email works on or off the air. You can send your comments anytime. We'll address them as they happen right here on the show. John calls from Hawaii. Hi, John. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty well over here. Um, yeah, I just had a, a question about working from home. Um, so my company, I work at a, a real estate technology company here. Okay. And we're getting ready to work from home um, because of, you know, just in case any big developments happen with, you know, the virus that's going around. Mm -hmm. So I've been trying to set up my, my Linux machine to connect into you know, our Windows machines at work. Okay. And so one one issue I have is with, um, you know, connecting to the mail servers um, on Outlook. Okay. Um, actually, online, I thought it would be easy, you know, but it only it's only letting me log into the light version of Outlook. And okay. then I was also experimenting with um, evolution. Yeah. Seeing if that would work. And so I was wondering if you had any, you know, um, recommendations there on that end. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. Let's 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 start one by one. So the so is it a is it like hosted exchange or is it Office three sixty five? Do you know what the background the the back end is? Or maybe it's a in house exchange server. I guess those still technically exist. Uh, yeah. I'm actually not sure. I'm I'm trying to. We we do have you know Office three sixty five, but I don't know if. Um, I'm not quite sure about the in-hosting and... If you have an you know, Office 365 subscri subscription, almost certainly your email is being handled by Office 365. And that's a good thing for you, by the way, if you want to access this from uh, from home. Um, one of the easiest things that you can do, and I, 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 I'm not sure why this wouldn't have worked. If It sounds like you tried it, but uh, if you just go to office.com inside of Firefox and you log into Office... Uh, you can just click on the Outlook icon and it should launch a web version of Outlook and you should have access to all of the functionality and features that you'd have um, on a Windows machine with Office 365. Is that not working? Uh, yeah, um, so that's kind of half working. It, it, it gives me this light version of Outlook and no matter, you know, um, I try to uncheck light and, you know, um, do that kind of thing, but it, it, it's really showing me the light version only. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. What browser are you using? Firefox. I am. Yeah, I, I tried on Firefox and Chrome. Oh, you did try it on Chrome. Okay, that was going to be my next thing because it is, so. And the reason for that is if uh, if Microsoft is doing anything to to optimize for a particular browser, chances are they're going to optimize for the Chrome engine, right? And so you would expect that to work. I'll I'll jump yeah. on after we get off the air here, and I will uh, I'll try and log in and see if I'm having that that same experience. I don't. I we have at the radio station that I work for. We they use Office 365, and I've had no issues uh, being able to use that flawlessly mm -hmm. on Linux. But let's 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 take a let's take it one step further. You said you tried Evolution. Was it not able to connect? 
Um, yeah, I can connect to my personal inbox, but the shared inboxes, um, I'm kind of mm. not sure how to access those actually. And my, my IT guy is not really sure on, you know, on evolutions end. and he's a, he's a windows guy. So sure. Sure. Um, I would, so I guess, uh, I guess what I would tell you is your, probably your, your, your best choice, um, for evolution is going to be uh, evolution. I believe it's EWS, and uh, and and evolution EWS allows you to subscribe to other users' folders. And so, if you have permission to to view a shared mailbox, you should be able to do that. Um, also, the major in the chat room says that he uses Office 365 from Firefox KDE Neon, and all works for him. So it may be an issue on your uh on your computer specifically i don't know if there's a if there you know if you have any custom security settings or something that might be preventing you from from logging in um but you might try with a fresh install or you might try just live booting and see if you're able to log into office 365 um that and at least see how that works also deluca in the chat room says that online 365 is not the same as office installed on your desktop uh at home or at work and um I think I think all of that is probably true. I just I've not I've not seen any features that are available in um, are available in Outlook proper that aren't available in the web interface. At least for the the you know checking email, reading shared inboxes, calendars, reminders, tasks, those kinds of things. Um, some of the more collaborative stuff I would imagine might be problematic. Um, but yeah, I would I would check out. I'm not sure if if uh, I, I can't remember. Exactly. Evolution EWS is a uh, if it's a uh, if it's a plugin for for evolution. Um, but uh, but yeah, I would I would give that a shot and see if that allows you. Here it is. So I'll have a link uh, for to the GNOME wiki that talks about evolution EWS and um, and 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 how that could how you could potentially use that to to to, to connect into an exchange system or hosted exchange system. Um, that might be an option for you. The the other thing that you could do, the other thing you could do is I would try a uh, like a, either a clean install or at least from a USB drive and see if you're able to if see if it works any different uh, doing that. The, you know, the last thing you could do, and we've done this quite a bit for customers that are working in an old uh, Windows environment. The other thing you can do is ask your IT guy, hey, is there a computer at work I can remote into? And they're probably going to set something up with RDP, and you can use a client like Remina to connect into your work computer. Now that does a couple of things for you that would be advantageous, John. The first thing it's going to do is it's going to move all of those company resources off of your personal computer and onto a company computer. So when the com company computer gets infected with the virus or there's a bunch of stuff that downloads or whatever it is, you don't have to worry about um, ab about that. You're able to just, yeah, that's work's problem because it's work's computer. Um, also, uh, you know, I do, I, I do want to do this. So DeLuca says in the chat room, he says he uses three Office 365 on his desktop at work, but all day they're logging into the web interface and it's a different experience. So he thinks he understands what he's talking about. He joins us in our interactive mumble room. Hey, oh, 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 sorry, that's the wrong button. Hey, Chris, welcome into the show. You're a little soft. Can you boost your volume? That'd be better. Yeah, it's a little better. What can you add to the conversation? Uh, using Outlook all day, uh, Office 365 actually installed on my desktop. And after using it all day, if I log into the web interface, 
it is definitely a different experience. And I, and I okay. think that's what he's experiencing. It, it's not that the functionality is not there. It's just, I believe it's a little watered down. I don't do it that often. I only do it when I need to do it. Like if I'm out and about and I need to check my email real fast. Sure. For work, it, but it, but it is definitely a different experience, and I believe that's that's what your caller is. I'm sorry, I, I missed the name. I John, that's what you're experiencing. Does that sound right, John? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, when you say you're you're logged in to Office 365 on your desktop, is that what kind of machine is that? It, it's a Windows 10 box, and it's actually the install of Office 365, like you used to do 2016 or 2019. Well. Now there's Office 365, and it's a local install of, of all the Office products. But you also have access to uh, Office 365 in the cloud. And um, that, I believe, is what you're logging into when you say your Outlook is, is different. Yes, that's right. I, I, yes, I'm pretty sure. So in this, in, in here I'm showing my ignorance because obviously I don't use the installed version of Office 365 ever. So my only experience has been with the web UI. So I, you know, I appreciate your insight into that. Do you have any suggestions, Chris, on, on anything, or is it just one of those things that you just have to kind of adjust to the lighter presentation of the same feature set? Yeah, honestly, I, I wouldn't try to, uh, uh, try to get around it. I think you're going to find yourself frustrating yourself more than if you just adjust to that presentation. Because, it, you know, if all things considered, this, this coronavirus isn't as bad as it appears, uh, maybe you'll be back to work in three weeks. Uh, mm. Unless you just want that. I, I don't know. I've never tried to get Office 365 on Evolution at home. I, I Honestly, when I leave work, I don't care. I leave it there. And if I need it, I just log into the, the cloud component. Okay. Well, thanks for that info. I appreciate it, Chris. Oh, you're welcome. I, I hope I helped out. Um, if, if he wants, uh, maybe he can, John, you can reach out to me on Telegram. Uh, uh, maybe I can help you out tomorrow when I'm sitting at my desk. Oh, okay. Yeah, thank you. So you can join you can join the interactive Telegram group by going to telegram.asknoahshow.com. And Chris DeLuca, thanks so much for joining us in our interactive Telegram group. The information is in the chat room. So if you want, uh, if you'd like to join the Telegram group, you're, or excuse me, if you'd like to join the mumble room, and, uh, and become a part of the program on an interactive level. Um, that's another way you can add your voice to the conversation. John, did we, uh, did we answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Thank you. I'll reach out to Chris, definitely. I appreciate that. And I appreciate Chris for jumping in there. Uh, this is the power of open source, people. This is what happens when you have a show where we center around you, the user, and what it is you want. And we have the technology now that makes it possible for Chris, who... Uh, has a lot of experience dealing with Office 365 and stuff like that to become and help users. So we appreciate that. Again, open phones at 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. That is the number to join us. You can add your voice to the conversation. Um, I want to, uh, we're going to run out of time here, so I'm, I'm going to skip over a couple of things. I want to get to our feedback. Uh, we try and handle that at the end of every episode. And you can join us by sending an email to live at asknoahshow.com. We'll try and address it in a future episode. Jaron writes in and says, hi, Noah, love the show. Thanks for being a voice of reason and a leader within the community. Unify equipment is great. It's fast and cheap, but should we express more concern about putting this equipment on our network. I was setting up a Unify controller and access points yesterday and it asked if I wanted to sign up for a management account. 
I decided it was time to read the fine print for the privacy policy, specifically as it relates to how they collect and share data. Perhaps this only applies to certain scopes, such as with a Unify account for remote management, but given how I arrived at this language, was that the controller set up at a prompt to log in for an online UI. Does the UI, does the Unify privacy policy concern you? If not, what would you do differently when setting up devices in multiple locations that gives you confidence that it's not subject to this policy? Thanks, Jaron from Connecticut. And um, the information that he quotes here from their privacy policy, information about yourself, such as your power usage, browser type, web pages of our services that give you access to device configurations or device performance data, mobile devices, sensor data, device signals, device parameters, device identifiers that may uniquely identify your device, including your mobile device and web request. We automatically collect location information, including latitude and longitude, performance data, motion data, temperature data, power usage data, and any data or signals collected by the devices as part of the usage data. We do not collect the contents of any communication that pass through our devices or services. Um, yes, it concerns me. It concerns me a lot, Jaron. In fact, to the point that I have talked numerous times on this show and others about how I believe we need to start moving away from uh, companies that do things like this. The problem is there aren't a lot of alternatives and there aren't a lot of alternatives that are doing it better. As bad and as irritating as some of the policies that Unify has, most of your other competitors like Cisco and their Marikai brand are doing worse. So do I agree that there is a problem? Yes. Do I have a good solution or an alternative? Not really. Um, I will continue to use, we'll continue to install Unify access points. They do a great job at the moment. You can still have a local controller and you can provision those access points. And there is a way, albeit a little obscure, that you can drop in there and prevent it from sending information into Unify. This is all documented. This is all uh, publicly available. So is it a perfect solution? No. Can we get there? Even if it is, a, even if it requires a couple of little paper cuts? Yes. Again, 1-855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. Just about out of time. I want to uh, leave us with a couple of announcements. Uh, this comes to us from Linux Fest Northwest. Out of an abundance of precaution and care for the well-beings of all Linux Fest presenters, sponsors, and attendees, volunteers, and their loved ones, we have unanimously elected not to hold Linux Fest Northwest in person in Bellingham Technical College this year. We were all looking forward to another excellent year of the fest, but the role of events like ours can have in spreading this virus already present in our locality is too great to ignore. In the coming weeks, we will be connecting with accepted presenters to find ways of bringing their talks to our website and our YouTube channel and setting up a space and setting up a space for Q&A. We'll also be reaching out to individual supporters who may elect to maintain their tax deductible donations in support for the fest or be fully refunded. Our corporate sponsors may choose to receive a full refund or roll their sponsorship to next year's Linux Fest Northwest in April of 2021. Um, Red Hat Summit making a similar announcement this week. Moving Red Hat Summit 2020 to a virtual experience. Red Hat Summit is a celebration of our customers, our partners, and community members, and Red Hatters themselves. Recognizing that their safety and well-being of these attendees is of utmost importance, we are canceling the physical Red Hat Summit presence and rebuilding it as a free multi-day virtual event, April 28th and 29th of 2020. We are taking this precautionary measure after closely monitoring the developments with coronavirus, COVID-19, and guidance from the CDC and H HWO and other health authorities. 
We know you may have questions and we'll continue to share our answers as they become available. Stay tuned to the Red Hat blog for additional information. All that information we'll have linked in the show notes. You can get those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. What I'm going to be working on for the rest of the week and next week is tutorials and other video-focused content to provide something to those of you who are going to stay home, self-quarantine, and chill. We'll see you all back here next week, Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. If you want more information, go over to asknoahshow.com. The show continues there 24-7, 365. We've got links to all the resources we talk about in the show at the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can also join our interactive Telegram group and continue the discussion throughout the week. We'll see you next Tuesday. Have a great week. Stay safe and not sick. <laughs>